Well, good morning, guys. Are y'all doing okay today? Doing good. Fine. Yeah. Jinx, yeah. Mike, you owe me a Coke. <laughs> we, uh, we've already been talking a little bit. It sounds like uh, we, we've all got some full days that will be going on here, Lord willing. Uh, hopefully, there'll be full days, but there'll be good days to the glory of God. So we want to just dive right into this. We've got some wonderful topics uh, to be talking about today. Uh, we're going to be talking about covenant theology, and really, covenant theology is is so important to uh, to, to everything in Scripture. It really is, as, as I read one time, uh, one individual described it, it, it's the backbone of the Bible. It really is how we view Scripture, how even how God presents it, because God has, you know, worked with His people through covenants, and so it's so important for us to see and know and understand you know, first of all, what is a covenant? And then what are these covenants in scripture? Uh, what is their purpose? And, uh, and, and, and just practically how that affects us as well, because we know all theology comes down into daily life. And so I'm looking forward to that. But speaking of practical things, we're going to start off by ending uh, a section that, that we, we didn't finish. We've got one final chapter in this unit before we cross over into Christology, which Christology starts with covenant theology, but we're going to talk about suffering. We're going to talk about suffering and and, and the believer, and, and this is so so very practical. And uh, and I just think you know, as unless we want to really hold ourselves off from people and be aloof, if if we care about our brothers and sisters, we're going to care about their suffering, and and we all go through suffering as well, just like Scripture talks about how. Suffering is multifaceted. I, I think about that passage in 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul says, we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And I remember reading, I forgot who it was, but it, it was uh, uh, a, a biblical counselor who had written in a book, uh, and he was discussing that verse, and he brought out how Right there, Paul lists the different types of suffering. He talked about, uh, I hope I can remember, the mental suffering, the physical suffering, uh, the emotional suffering, and the spiritual suffering. Yeah, those were the four. And uh, and I just thought, you know, I've never seen it that way, but but it really is. And so there's, there's these different, uh, as, I mean, so, suffering is just so multifaceted. And I think when we think of suffering and we think of the church, you think about that passage in Galatians 6, and we're to bear one another's burdens. I mean, that really is, should be one of the main functions of the church, is that whenever you have a, a, a church member who's hurting, uh, the church applies the bandages. Whenever you have a member who's down, the church is to encourage them. Whenever you have a member who's in need, the church comes alongside to help. And in all of that, you know, you think about Second Corinthians chapter one, how God comforts us in our affliction, so that we might be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which ourselves are comforted by God. That, that's a hard verse to say, by the way. <laughs> There's a lot of com comfort words in there. The word comfort, but uh, but you know how that works. You know, even in that, where so many people have been through all sorts of different struggles and all, and and with that. You know, we have to be in each other's lives. We have to be able uh, to just comfort one another. And as I was thinking about all this yesterday and uh, just just looking at a couple of things, I pulled down this book from my shelf, uh, Piper 
and uh, Justin Taylor, they were the editors. It's just a book of uh, essays. And uh, just flipping through it, and David Pallison, who is a great biblical counselor, he, he's passed away a few years ago. But uh, I saw a little section I'd underline. I just want to read this. And then, Mike, I'm going to toss it to you. Mike, you're going to talk to us about uh, suffering. And then we're going to go over to, to Marvin and Will to talk to us about covenant theology. But let, let me just read this, this little uh, short paragraph he writes. He, he says, when you pass through your own fiery trials and found God to be true to what he says, you have real help to offer. You have firsthand experience of both his sustaining grace and his purposeful design. He has kept you through pain. He has reshaped you more to his image. What you are experiencing from God, you can give away in increasing measure to others. You are learning both the tenderness and the clarity necessary to help sanctify another person's deepest distress. And I just thought, man, that is just right there on point, how we need that in the church. So, I mean, what does that tell us about the church and our relationships? I mean, we, we've got to know each other. We've got to be close to one another. We've got to have this type of ministry in each other's lives. And I know there's just, you know, in the church, even the size of ours, which is not a big church, we're going to have some we gravitate more toward than others. We're going to be closer to some than others. But just in general, we've got to strive to have these relationships church-wide, you know, as we can, so that we can carry out this ministry and so many other ministries. Yeah. So, Mike, let me toss it to you, brother. When we're talking about yep. the suffering, uh, and I know you did the reading, and so you, you have the intellectual knowledge, but, but Mike, you don't have the experiential knowledge, do you? You've never really went through any oh. suffering. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just messing with you, brother. Yeah, yeah, no, I've been through my share, and still uh, am. <laughs> well, brother, talk to us. Yeah, but uh, before I begin, to, just the key on your point about the relationship, relational, you know, knowing each other, not just having knowledge, but knowing each other helps us mm. pray more sincere and uh, focused for each other as well. Yes. But I guess the way I'll start out, I, I'm going to use uh, uh, kind of like the technique that Will has used in the past, but I'm going to start and kind of like give the bottom line up front. So go to the end of the chapter. And when we look at all the suffering that takes place, it brings up a lot of questions that we probably all have heard or even asked ourselves, you know, why does, why do bad things or why is this happening to good people or to, to Christians? Uh, and the, in the last paragraph on his narrative in the chapter uh, it, it talks about you know different things, but this is on considering Christ. Seek seek grace to live with Him and like Him today through your afflictions, and you will will discover with the apostle. For me is to live, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Hope in the Lord and His redemption. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and He shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. So um, the, that that kind of like bottom line up front is there. There's a purpose. Uh, or a reason why we go through what we go through is uh, is as believers, uh, and there there is a reason. It's a refining process, uh, sanctification. Again, as you mentioned earlier, Van, it's uh, it, it's it's and and his narrative in the chapter twenty six, uh, Beaky also says it's a way that God is refining sin out of us, or making us aware of sin, refining it out of us. But he starts with the introduction. Um, that um, that Christians, we as Christians, we should expect to suffer. We're not we're not once we become a, a re, we are regenerated, 
uh, life is not going to be easy. It's not going to be uh, uh, the, for the expression of better roses. It's going. We're going to we're going to suffer. Christ suffered as He lived on this earth, so we're we're going to suffer in Christ, suffer along with with Him, and our walk with Him. So, um, so and he mentions at the very beginning. He he brings up uh, the historical through the uh, the. the what we learn in the Bible, you know, he mentions Job. He said, God-fearing saints may suffer financial ruin, bereavement of family members, a loss of health. He mentioned uh, the the uh, the trials or testing uh, that, uh, you know, from Joseph to Jeremiah to Christ. Uh, history is full of God's servants uh, uh, experiencing uh, uh, suffering and, and tears, and uh, but all, all for a purpose, all for a reason. But he said it raises theological questions that we need to look at, and uh, why why are we suffering? And well, the, the, you know the the um, the obvious one of the obvious answer is it's ultimately it's traced back to the fall of Adam in the garden. Um, and uh, he mentions Romans eight twenty eight uh, again. That that's I could have started with that as a bottom line up front. We know all things work together for good uh, to them that love God and to them who are called according to His purpose. But uh, the, uh, the, I guess the important thing he stresses, it's not how much or the amount of uh, affliction we receive or go through, but it's how we as Christians respond to the affliction. Mm-hmm. And that's what's key. And so we need to know or we need to understand and why we as Christians are going through all this. I mean, and it's easier said than done. Uh, he even mentions that uh, to prepare for affliction before it comes, it's hard to look back on it with gratitude after it is over is even harder, but to live like Christ and the affliction is the hardest. So our response to the affliction or suffering we're, 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 we're going through, we need to be uh, focused on Christ. Again, it's it's easier said than, than done, uh, but as we go through trial after trial, uh, testing, our, our, our strength, our perseverance is increased and we, we, we become um, um, more molded or more shaped into what God would have us to be with the experience that we're going through. And then he mentions that, um, uh, um, why are we, why, why is this all happening? And he said, uh, that, uh, you know, we are actually, we need to look at it as we're participating in, a, in, in affliction because we live in a fallen world and we, we, we live in, uh, we have, um, he, he, his exact words, uh, Saints cons- uh, experienced by saints consist of suffering and solidarity with their falling race. Uh, we, 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 yes, we're saved, we're redeemed, but we live in a fallen world uh, with a fallen race. And as well as uh, we're, we're, we uh, Christians also experience when a nation is punished, uh, the uh, saints also suffer with judgments against the nation, uh, uh, against their nation. Uh, and we see examples of that in the Bible with the prophets uh, 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 warning and the destruction of the holy city. And uh, so he, he kind of goes into that introduction. And then he uh, brings up uh, uh, reasons, uh, you know, he talks about God, our father, and how he his purpose is for affliction. Mm-hmm. And then he goes into nine benefits that affliction bring. Um so I, I want to just highlight on these afflictions. He, he talks about the afflictions. He said they can be heavy and difficult to bear. Uh, but he said that uh, if you are a Christian, your faith can help you understand 
some of the rich benefits that affliction brings under the hand of the Father. So these afflictions, we, we need to, you know, again, we go to James and you look at James, consider it with joy, you know, the trials and testing we go through. So there, we need to look at the benefits, the rich, he, he titles rich benefits that affliction brings it under the hand of the Father. And so the, I'll, I'll just summarize the, the, the nine he, he brings up. God humbles believers deeply. Through affliction, God humbles believers. Um, one of the most humbling uh, aspects of trials is that we often do not understand the specific reason they come upon us, yet it's precisely when we do not comprehend the Father's way that we can learn submissive trust in his will. So he's humbling us and he humbles us. And again, it, 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 it's shaping us, but realizing that we are dependent upon him and we know our heavenly father is not going to tempt us or put us in any situation that we cannot handle. And he will give us a way of escape. Mike, uh, can I just second, jump in here real sure. quick? And uh, can I just mention uh, someone he, he, he mentions is uh, Edward Payson. He was known as a uh, uh, praying Payson of Portland. And uh, he says here, says Edward Payson, which by the way, he, I read his biography a while back and, and they never said what illness he had, but they basically said that he had something where he felt like he could not feel his limbs. Like he lost all feeling in his limbs, but he said it felt like in his bones, someone had poured like hot lava or fire. And I mean, it was just a torturous time until he died basically. But, but here's what uh, Beaky says. He said, Edward Payson, was asked if he understood the reason for the great pain and weakness that afflicted his body as he slowly died. He said, no, but I am as well satisfied as if I could see 10,000, meaning 10,000 reasons. God's will is the very perfection of all reasons. And that just goes to exactly what you're saying, Mike. Well, even yeah. if we don't know the reasons, we still trust. Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, the second uh um, benefit or rich benefit is that uh, affliction through affliction, God exposes believers' sins. I kind of mentioned that at the beginning, you know, the uh, uh, that uh, through the affliction, we might be Christ, might, uh, God may be uh, bringing a sin to our attention in our lives that we need to uh, repent of. Um, and uh, Thomas Watson, he, he quotes Thomas Watson, through affliction we learn as Tom, Thomas Watson said, sin unrepented of ends in tragedy. It has the devil for its father, shame for its companion, death for its wages. So he's bringing, uh, uh, so I, I think it was Will or maybe Marvin, uh, last, the last one we did, that, you know, we, we uh, the unrepented sin, you know, God can, uh, uh, put these uh, or remove uh, common grace from us that causes us pain and sorrow to get our attention to maybe a sin that we're, we're, we're engaged in that we're not aware of. Um, the third uh, rich benefit, he said, through affliction, God purchased believers corruption. That goes in through the sanctification process. Uh, uh, again, that I mentioned earlier, uh, fourth uh, and, and stop me up by you want to uh, focus on any particular aspect, but the fourth uh, uh, rich afflict, uh, rich benefit through affliction, God draws believers near to him. I think, and that this is, uh, I think, very important. It's like when we go through tough times, again, it, our dependency upon the Lord to trust him, to, to grow our faith and to strengthen our faith in God, that through God, I mean, that's what we need. We need, we need uh, God. And we need to be Christ-centered, God-focused in our lives. Uh, and it brings us closer to communion with him. 
And yeah, I, uh, it should. If I can just come in on that for a second. Yeah. The, um, back in 2015, I had lost my job at the public defender. Well, end of 2014, Christmas 2014, I lost my job at the public defender's office. My grandpa had died a few months before that. And then in 2015, I lost both of my grandmothers, one in February, one in May. And um, so I was just in a really dark place. And I came across this quote by J.I. Packer that really hits on what you're talking about right here. J.I. Packer says that God sends us both blessings and suffering to detach our hands from the things of this world and attach them to himself. And that was such a comfort during that time to realize there were several things going on in my life at that point, and I wasn't relying on God. And what God was doing through both some of the good things that he was doing in my life, but also through the suffering was to make me understand my need for him and my dependence on him and, and that this life is temporary. Mm-hmm. And, and really what you're talking about here is, is so key to the Christian life because so oftentimes we can read our Bible and go through our day, not really thinking about the things of God, not really thinking about eternity but then this happens, but then suffering happens. And the question is why, why does God allow believers to suffer? Well, it's for this purpose to show us that we live in a fallen and broken world and that we need him. Yep. And, and it, it detaches our hands from whatever we're fixated on here on earth and attaches them to him and, and, and that he is our only hope. So I, I really resonated with what you were just talking about. Yeah, that yeah, that's that's good, Will, and 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 he, he does this because a lot of times people that are suffering and, and going th- through affliction and trials, they turn to other things or other idols. You know, it could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could right. be other things. And so he's using this. Hey, you know, you come to me, uh, draw to draw his children to him and not to uh, idols. Yeah, it tends okay. to it, it tends to uh, highlight fault lines, doesn't it? Right. Yes. Uh, where, where, wherever we're weak. I mean, that that seems to be where whatever our coping me- mechanism is, that seems to be where I mean, and that's an, uh, and that's a good way, really, I think, to see in our lives where these things are. Both you guys have, have said it so well. Uh, but again, I, I had a, a friend years ago uh, say uh, his philosophy of life is to hold hold all things lightly. Right. Uh, and, and that 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 was good advice. And something i wish i held to <laughs> yeah uh, because it's not it's it's not only um it's not only uh you know uh, suffering uh, through relationships and through material things and all that in, in my life it's been a matter of suffering through expectations i mean i had in my uh, 30s i had grand expectations of how my life would go and how it would track and and again one of the things i had to do is uh, as as God had other plans is really to realign that. And I guess that was where my fault line was as well is really just to have a real, just a hands off to know that God's going to do with me and that, uh, and at the maximum joy and peace and satisfaction in that is just, uh, uh, is just taking my hands of ownership or claimed ownership off of it and just letting it move me as he would. Second Corinthians 12, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about suffering. And yeah. he says that 
beginning of or middle of verse seven, it says, therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me. So I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most, most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and in pressures because of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that was another verse that really spoke during that time was that sometimes God doesn't just remove us from affliction. Sometimes he does. But oftentimes God puts us, makes us go through seasons of affliction for that purpose, to show us that his grace is sufficient, sufficient. for us in that moment. Yeah. Not just eternal, not just something we can look forward to later, but right now in but this then, moment, yeah. God's grace is sufficient for us. Yep. That's a good point. Uh, the fifth, the fifth uh, benefit, rich benefit that affliction brings is he said God conforms believers to Christ. Uh, as Christians, we are called to put on the new man, the image of God in which Christ is all. The Lord uses affliction to conform us to Christ that we might be partakers in his holiness. So again, it's it's getting that shaping and conforming us uh, to, to to be more like in our life and our walk, uh, reflecting the image of Christ. And uh, and again, it, it's set the setting apart. You know, we, we were set apart and it's a part of that setting apart to be holy, the sanctification process that we go through. And uh, through our our entire walk, uh, um, and he, I like what he said. He said through the on this particular fifth reason, uh, conforming believers to Christ. He said through uh, through the way of suffering, we become followers of the Lamb of God. All our paths of affliction have already been traveled, overcome, and sanctified by our Shepherd, whose substitutionary substitutionary blood is our sure pledge that no affliction is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Um, the, uh, sixth one, he written, he said that through affliction, God expands believers joy. Again, uh, uh, it's, it's easier said than done, but when we look back on it and see how God has shaped and molded us after we've been through a trial, I mean, we can look back with joy. I mean, I can look back in my life on trials and testing that I've been through and, and I can see and, and with joy, you see how it's strengthened me, strengthened my relationships with other individuals, uh, um, and uh, just made me um, uh, uh, a, a better, a better, a better, um, uh, for lack of better words, not trying to dehumanize stuff, but a better tool, a better uh, help helper for other people that, that are going through similar things uh, that I've, I've been through. Um, and then the six, God, uh, that's the joy. Seventh, uh, through affliction, God increases the believer's faith. I mentioned that kind of summarized that earlier. Uh, he's strengthening our faith. Uh, he's uh, uh, by our walk. Uh, again, he, he mentions affliction works for good by helping us walk by faith and not by sight. Um, so I didn't get that. Did oh. you try again? <laughs> <laughs> Try it again, Mike. <laughs> uh, well, I tell you, if Siri doesn't get it, <laughs> I'd, be, I'd, be, I'd be popping a big sweat. <laughs> uh, let, let me do this. <laughs> Hopefully she won't be able to hear, hear me inside the desk roar. But anyway, I uh, sure hope not. I mean, I want, well, okay, that's another matter. Go ahead, brother. <laughs> I, I don't want to open that can of worms. <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so we, um, 
but anyway, so that that it increases our faith uh, uh, through the uh, the affliction by by helping us walk by faith and not by sight. Because I mean, that's that's when we're here on this earth. We live in a fallen world, uh, and uh, and we we're, we're exposed to these these uh, sufferings uh, as a part of living in a fallen world and with our nation uh, for its uh, sinful uh, behavior. Um, that we we really see with what's going on in our own country today with the decline of the moral fiber of our backbone. But um, yeah, it's uh, we we live by faith. Uh, our faith is is uh, is being developed for that one day we we our faith will be sight. And that's um, I mean that's that that is um, not uh, that uh, that our walk uh, our faith uh, was not by sight or will be by sight. Uh, uh, that that has become be, um, be more and more uh, significant or special to me going through the the, uh, the the past events, especially with my mother-in-law and, and just hearing that uh, preached and shared and just the significance and the joy that brings to, to, to my heart uh, that uh, like my, my, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, their faith aside. So, um, but anyway, eight, through affliction, God weans believers from this world. So that's what he's trying to, that's what we're, we're, we're being prepared for something after this world. And um, he, uh, he mentions in here, um, uh, the, the world's bite reminds us that we are not at home, but strangers and pilgrims on this earth. So we're being gradually, I mean, I guess the way to look at it, uh, if I summarize it would be as we go through these sufferings and these trials, uh, we're being shaped and molded and strengthened, but we're also being uh, weaned off the world. And we're, we're be, and again, it goes back to being drawn closer to our Heavenly Father. He wants to bring us to Him, dependent upon Him, to trust in Him, to have faith in Him, and you know, and thereby it increases our love for Him as well. Uh, and then the ninth one, the final, he said that through affliction, God prepares believers for their heavenly inheritance. Um, affliction elevates our, he, he writes, uh, Beaky does, affliction elevates our soul heavenward so that we look for a city with fountain, foundations whose builder and maker is God. Action pays the way to glory. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us far more exceedingly an eternal weight of glory. So, I mean, what we have waiting for us is uh, far exceeds what, what we, what we experience uh, on the, in the world. Um, so, um, so he says, child of God, do you believe that affliction is for your spiritual good? Do you trust that God will provide everything necessary or good for you, both in this age and the age of the come? And then he, he encourages us, Beaky does, then do what Paul calls you to do in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God and Jesus Christ concerning you. So um, that's kind of like the, the benefits. And then he goes into, he talks about the, the communion, how suffering uh, uh, with, uh, with the, the communion that we have, suffering with Christ. And he, go, he goes in real quickly. Uh, I, uh, he covers six ways um, to consider six ways to consider uh, uh, the the affliction in Christ, and he um, because when we walk with Christ, um, this will this will help us. So he he titles it, um, but it's good to present uh, to encourage you to consider Christ's affliction. So when when we're going through affliction, when we're going through suffering, the, the, our focus should be on Christ. That's, that's kind of what he's saying here. 
And he said, we should consider the piety of Christ. His life was God-centered. So our life needs to be God-centered as we go through, through uh, suffering and trials. Our, we need to consider the perseverance of Christ. Christ was tempted. Christ persevered. Uh, uh, and let's see, uh, I like what he said at the bottom of page 491 on this, for this, uh, consider the perseverance of Christ. Uh, he, he said, the Lord directs our hearts in the patient, into the patience of Christ so that his endurance may be ours. This is the pathway that all God's sons must walk. William Dyer said, God hath one son without sin, but no son with sorrow. He had one son without corruption, but no son without correction. And I think that's uh, pretty, uh, pr that, to me, that was pretty important, pretty significant to what we're, when, we're, when we look at when, uh, this particular area of uh, the, uh, being focused on Christ and with the, in, in communion with Christ in our affliction. The second one, uh, or the third one, was the power of Christ. Uh, we need to consider the power of Christ. Um, Christ shepherds his people, he says, and the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. He, he, if he desires to weigh us down with afflictions, yes, heavy afflictions, staggering afflictions, we must not be alarmed. We must look to him for our strength. Again, it's it's coming back and depending upon the, the, the Lord, our Heavenly Father, for 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 in all aspects of our lives. So he wants us to be Christ-centered, and we need to be turning to to, to Christ for our strength. Because uh, he, he, without him, we are nothing. We can't do anything on our own. Um, uh, consider the prayers of Christ. Uh, Jesus prayed, and so having a Christ-centered view, and we look at the the affliction of the communion, we need to be in prayer too. Uh, God wants us to come to Him and 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 at all times in hours, especially in hours of need. He uh, he highlights on page four ninety three when he talks about prayer. He says we we too ought to make more use of prayer, especially in combating spiritual depression under afflictions. Knowing that we have a sympathetic high priest in heaven, let us pray with boldness for mercy and grace that we need. A prayerless affliction is like an open sore, ripe for infection. A prayerful affliction is like a sore soothed with the balm of Gilead, the healing ointment of Jesus' blood. So, um, again, it, uh, we need to be in prayer. We, we, Christ prayed. We need to pray uh, in all in all our afflictions and all in all matters. And then the, the presence of Christ. Uh, he said, fifth, consider the presence of Christ. Um, uh, he is uh, no, at no time absent from us, even when our faith uh, doesn't uh, actually, even when our faith doesn't reach out to him. He is, he is there. He is present. He is with us. And then the sixth, consider the plan of Christ uh, in, in the communion uh, uh, with him and sin. That the Lord preserved, uh, Christ preserved because the plan was set before him. He suffered. Uh, he entered his his glory just as God had ordained. So everything that happened to Christ was ordained and was for a reason, for a purpose. Um, so Christ pursued a eternal a, the eternal glory, but not for himself, but also for the children of God. And then I, I like how he ends the uh, ch uh, chapter. He says, uh, remember the order of God's plan. Light after darkness, gain after loss, strength after weakness, crown after cross, and I thought I, I thought that was um, um, a, a very good way to to put it. When we look at uh, suffering, we look at the pain of suffering, and 
the whole thing is, uh, when we look at this chapter is, it's our dependency, our trust, and strengthen our faith, the molding and shaping, preparing us for something uh, better and more beautiful uh, at the end of our, our, our walk with the Lord, but also it prepares us and enables us to minister to others uh, in their time of need as well. Hey, well, thank you so much, Mike. And, and so much of that is, is so helpful and, and very practical and very beneficial. Hey, yeah, going back to what you said at the sort of at the beginning when you started, you know, the, those nine aspects of, uh, of, of why we suffer and, and how we should have our mindset uh, through suffering. I tell you, those things are really worth memorizing. And, and when you're dealing with someone who is going through deep trials, just to comfort them with those truths, those non-truths. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that is so helpful uh, there. Well, let's shift our attention now. We're going to go to probably one of the most important theological subjects we can look at because so many things are grouped under it, and that is the subject of uh, covenant theology. And even as we're embarking into this new unit in uh, Beaky's systematic theology, which we're going into the area of Christology, uh, our theology of, of Christ and who he is. Uh, this is so important that this is where Beaky kicks off that whole study. He starts here with covenant theology. And so, uh, uh, Marvin, brother, we want to go to you just uh, for you to help us to know and understand uh, what is covenant theology, what is the covenant of grace. And, and, and we know that uh, as Reformed Baptists, we have some different takes on covenant theology than our, than our Presbyterian brothers would have. And so right. I'm sure as we go through, you know, we'll yep. hit we, we get we, we get kind of whispers of them uh, in this chapter, <laughs> yeah. one in particular yeah. that I'm going to mention. But uh, yeah. yeah, you're right. So, I mean, it will be played out. Yeah. So, brother, t take it away. And, and since uh, uh, Will's subject is going to dovetail into yours where, you know, you're going to take more of the theological, Will's going to take more of the uh, historical theological aspects of it and how this has been sort of hammered out through history. Uh, Marvin, you take it and just throw it right over to Will whenever you okay. uh, finish. Right? All right. I'll try to move through this expeditiously. Um, okay. uh, I would uh, follow on your, your beginning comment there in the, sec in the sense that there are a lot of systematic theologies out there, and uh, most of them I've never read. Um, and, but again, of those that I have, um, I don't know. I don't ever know that in a section on the person and the work of Christ uh, that there was such an extensive prologue as that uh, to the covenant of grace that preceded it. Mm -hmm. I think that's what really marks this one out. Uh, there may have been other reform uh, theologians that have done that, but uh, to my knowledge, no one has really fleshed this out. And I think, I think that is a, a wonderful way. Uh, to uh, a wonderful way to begin uh, the study of the person and work of Christ or the or Christology as we would call it. Uh, I had a PhD seminar at Southwestern on the person and work of Christ from Bert Dominic, which again is no, it, it was a Southern Baptist seminary, so you can read into that what you want. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, we never once even, we never once even uh, smelled the covenant of grace anywhere in there. <laughs> Uh, it was, uh, it, uh, it, but it's a, a great contrast. Well, the covenant of grace, as he says, and, uh, covenantal theology in more particular, 
I, I think he wants to go ahead and make the point here that this is the way, uh, the, uh, a way to put this would be that it is the instrument or the vehicle uh, through which God brings to us Jesus Christ. Uh, he, matter of fact, he cites the Westminster Confession, and he says on page, uh, you know, page number here, because being a chapter three, uh, five twenty-one, he says the Westminster divines perceived that the doctrine of redemption revolves around three foci or foci or. Uh, whatever <laughs> uh, yeah, I, i've heard it pronounced both ways i, I don't know I, I i i have too i don't know if that's a soft C or what low C, low yeah yeah i don't know uh yeah i i think of well again i'm getting off track here i i, I think of rush limbaugh whenever i hear this he what particularly at iowa last week he used to refer to the iowa coxes as the hawkeye cockeye <laughs> and, <laughs> and i always loved that but anyway uh, he says that it is uh, around three three areas of focus: election, the covenant of grace, and Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. Uh, election we have covered uh, in in great detail and great measure in the previous sections that we've dealt with. Uh, the covenant of grace, to some extent, we've certainly been introduced to, and it's kind of uh, flavored some of the other uh, doctrinal materials that he's had in here, and certainly Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. Uh, has been mentioned on several occasions, uh, but the but the last two are the ones that he's going to give particular attention to here. Um, and so uh, the reason he do, uh, and to say that that's the doctrine of redemption uh, is indeed profound because he's basically he is saying that this is really the gospel. The doctrine of redemption is the way that God takes a lost and a sinful people and he redeems them. Uh, and purchases them for himself. So he uh, says at the bottom of the page that a synonym for covenant is federal, and it's a term that our uh, listeners uh, may be familiar with. And again, we want to revive that because it's an important way really to talk. A federal just means there's a head. Uh, it's, there's a headship here. Um, and again, his point here in the covenant of grace is that even bef even uh, millennia before uh, Christ ever came, he was the head of this. He was the head of this covenant of grace, uh, prospectively, and then when he came, uh, in terms of the way that he uh, accomplished it and applied it, and the way that we stand in that as well. Well, he has on five twenty two a question: Why study the doctrine that are the covenant of grace? Uh, and I love the first sentence there, and I want to quote it. Um, he says, the doctrine of the covenant of grace is beautiful to contemplate. The covenant is like a gold ring that clasps the diamond of our Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm. and, and I stopped, and I uh, I don't often do that because sometimes when I'm reading through material, I'm just reading it actually. <laughs> you know, honestly, I'm just reading it for, for content. But this one kind of uh, – if if this were in the Psalms, there'd be a Selah after it. Uh, like <laughs> yeah. Stop and meditate here. Uh, but but really, I mean, this is this is so good, isn't it? He says it's beautiful to contemplate the covenant like a gold ring that clasps the diamond of our Lord Jesus. In other words, what he's saying there is 
that very often with a with a, a diamond ring, whether it's an engagement ring or a wedding ring or whatever the case may be, the first comment, particularly of women, is they look at the they look at the the diamond or they look at the uh, the stone there, and they wonder, well, is it real or is it fake? You know, I guess, uh, I was I was so broke whenever Karen and I got married. Uh, I, I'll admit, I <laughs> I I, uh, I I I went the cheaper route there. Uh, but she was satisfied with it, and again, uh, this is one, not one of those things that she wishes to revisit. It doesn't really uh, – she's not a big jewelry person. But the thing we often neglect there is the gold ring, uh, that there is something that in, that holds this, uh, something that encases this, so to speak. Uh, and the gold ring is all of the all of the scriptures, all of the Bible uh, in the in the covenant in the covenant of grace either uh, e either uh, anticipated or realized, uh, which again, as uh, Beaky says, we cannot understand uh, God's covenant of grace apart from it's, it's embedding in the story of the Bible. It's embedding, it's embedding in redemption history. And that's why, uh, and, and when I'm reading this as well, uh, when I, I think about the, uh, the gold ring, I think uh, there's an, another there's another sense in which in which that uh, uh, in, in which that uh, met, in which that simile or that comparison really is good, because again I, I think when we read the Bible and we read the old the old and New Testaments, but particularly the Old Testament, uh, I I think this helps us to uh, to try to come to grips with some of the more difficult parts of it. Mm -hmm. uh, we see those that, for instance, are are mentioned. Uh, in Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith uh, and they are not perfect by any measure and in the Old Testament we read them warts and all Abraham in particular I mean not just once but twice in order to preserve his life he passed off his own wife as a sister <laughs> yeah uh, and again I mean just things like just things like that uh, but again these things help us to understand the gold ring that holds that that holds the precious diamond um and as we spend the next 200 pages and again that's the other thing that's remarkable here is he spends 200 pages talking about the covenant of grace before he ever gets to the first part of the uh, section of christology but i do uh, there are uh he says uh 522 he says there are several reasons why we should spend time on this doctrine uh, and again i i will note them and very hurriedly and move on he says, first of all, the covenant stands in the closest relation to Christ, uh, and it and it does. Um, if we are looking at, uh, if we are looking at our relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, we must understand that it is by covenant, uh, and that uh, those and that those who would stand in closest relationship to Him are those that would are those that would stand in that covenant. As a matter of fact, and the last sentence in under number one, he says the Holy scriptures repeatedly link the work of the Lord Jesus to God's covenant. Therefore to know Christ in his riches, we must know the biblical doctrine of the covenant. Uh, secondly, he says the covenant struck uh, the covenant structures, redemptive history. And that's kind of what I was uh, talking about just a minute ago. Uh, it structures redemptive history in the sense that it helps us to understand uh, that, uh, uh, that in God's that in God's perfect work with imperfect people, 
that the gold ring in which the diamond is in, uh, is is embedded uh, is one that is uh, told from beginning to end, uh, and every and everything uh, in its own way uh, is God's covenant of grace. And we'll talk about the various the various covenants very briefly later uh, that. God has in relationship to his people. But the point that Beaky makes and the point that we make often in our own church and in our own uh, discussions uh, is the fact that, as Beaky says, the covenant of grace overrides them all. He says, thirdly, the covenant supports God-centered faith. Uh, and it does. I, I think it does in the sense that uh, it supports God-centered faith in the sense that, uh, first, of all, uh, is, uh, first of all, is that the covenant of grace is historical. And I think that's a very important point here is the fact that God doesn't, uh, my, uh, my, my daddy once you, uh, uh, once, uh, uh, he, he was, uh, uh, sometimes exasperated by my lack of attention. And he would say to me, son, seem like you wake up in a new world every 10 minutes. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I mean, that, that, that's kind of the same thing here, uh, in the sense that no, uh, God, Christ is not a construction out of whole cloth by the gospel writers or by the New Testament or the New Testament writers. They, they are rich with citations of the Old Covenant. Uh, so again, to say that it supports God-centered faith is again is to affirm the fact uh, that the God that, that the God of the Old Testament and New Testament is the same God who has related to his people in different ways. But yet, in the different manifestations of that relation, or that of showing himself in that way, has never wavered. There has always been the overarching theme uh, of God's covenant of grace in Jesus Christ through that. The fourth is the covenant shapes spiritual experience. And um, uh, he says, uh, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, God works in his people what pleases him through Jesus Christ so that they do many good works. Um, he, he has, uh, I think one of the great values of this chapter is he talks about the law in relationship to the covenant of grace in ways that he's talked about it before, but I think in ways really that fully anticipate the person and work of Christ. This is where all that, which he's done before really just kind of, uh, uh, just, just kind of lays the table or as Van often says, sets the table, uh, for what, for what is yet to come. Uh, and, and again, uh, uh, Van, I bet you thought I was going to pass over Sinclair Ferguson there because he, he, <laughs> yeah. he, he said, I love that. that. And Sinclair Ferguson says that the, that the theme, that the theme of covenant is the architectonic principle of the Bible. Uh, that, and that, that is, doesn't that just make your mouth feel good to say that? Oh, word? it does. It does. And again, I wish I could say it. Uh, the theme of the covenant is the architectonic <laughs> <There you go. laughs> <a> principle. <laughs> um, uh, Scottish brogue. There yeah, Ferguson I wish I, I had that uh, again. That's uh, uh, Will. That's on your. That's on your to-do list uh, when you go to Scotland. Is to bring us back a good brogue. Uh, put it in a bottle and, and keep it well. Get it through, get it through customs safely and, and bring it back to us. Uh, Fourth, uh, let's see. Fifthly, he says that the church, uh, the covenant directs the church's practice. Um, and it's true. I mean, uh, what he says there as the covenant people of God, as we call ourselves, the covenant of grace actually does direct us. 
Now, here again is where uh, we I was talking about earlier, the whispers of where uh, of the few areas where we're going to disagree with our brother here. Uh, but there is one on 524 and not the, uh, in the, the remaining paragraph there. Uh, and I will uh, I will mention it and, and try not to comment on it other than to just say uh, that this is an area of, of, as Vanna said, this is an area of discernment that we need to not only for ourselves as we read this, but also as those who, who are Baptist covenant theologians that we need to be careful to uh, to express also uh, to the readers and, and in this case to our hearers as well. Uh, he says the relation of adults and their children to the church is defined by God's covenant. Uh, there's a sense in which I agree with that. Uh, but the sense of it is, and again, where where we're going to see this uh, is in the Abrahamic covenant, ironically enough. I mean, he will in the Abrahamic covenant say it is a covenant of faith. It is a covenant for believers. Uh, but yet we see something like this in which uh, there's a mixture, even though he doesn't play it out, but I know he will, uh, in which he says that the relationship of adults and children is defined by God's covenant. And we would affirm that as Baptists as well, but not in the sense that they do. We would affirm that it is our responsibility as parents and as adults actually to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord constantly pressing upon them their need to believe in Jesus Christ, uh, that they cannot, that they, e even though, even though our earnest desire uh, privately and perhaps even publicly as we've stood before the church and we've offered our newborn baby uh, and said, uh, we would desire, we would desire the blessings of God, pe God's people here, not in any kind of sacramental way, but stand with us in this. Uh, we have a great, and the one, and the most important task in life, really, that stands before us is this tiny baby here uh, that raised him in a nurture and admonition of the Lord, and not just we as his parents, but you as well. Every time, whether you have him in a Sunday school class, whether you have him in vacation Bible school, uh, whether uh, whether you just have him over uh, and, uh, and just uh, you know uh, feed him cake or something like that, at every pl at every point. Uh, press upon him his need uh, for for a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, uh, I think that's an important distinction to make there. But I think on the other hand, he does say that the Lord's Supper is explicitly a covenantal ordinance, and that is something we've been going through, isn't it? Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, we've been trying to draw a very fine point on that, uh, and and I think Beaky will be helpful uh, to us in that regard. So again, as I say, Beaky is. Uh, is uh, not is uh, ninety eight percent helpful, two percent not unhelpful, but uh, not as helpful as he could be. Uh, and then six, the covenant glorifies God in His attributes, uh, and it does. Again, uh, when we think of the covenant of grace in its totality, as it is centered upon Jesus Christ, we there see all we there we there see all of God's attributes that are displayed uh, in the administration of that covenant. In the old, in the old and the New Testaments, uh, we see that uh, in His glorious attributes, the uh, both incommunicable and communicable to us, uh, we see those uh, demonstrated in the covenant of grace, and we thereby, um, as the psalmist does, we thereby stand slack-jawed in glory uh, 
uh, in the great covenant God who has loved us and uh, with an everlasting love and has undertaken on our behalf as he who is our shelter and our shield. Uh, the next section is the meaning of covenant renewed, re, re, reviewed. And I'm going to move through this uh, very quickly because I know we, we're, we're running out of time here. Uh, I, uh, it, uh, it, obviously, we need a, a good definition of covenant, and he gives that to us in the last uh, paragraph on 524. What is a covenant? What, would we, what do we mean by God's covenants with man? Uh, we've already proposed that a covenant, covenant may be defined as, and he has our, in previous chapters, as a solemn promise that functions as a legal instrument to define a relationship of loyalty. Uh, and that still is a good definition here. Um, I think he begins to uh, tease us out or begins to introduce us uh, to in, in this chapter to the fact that in the definition, if particularly in the ancient Near Eastern world and the Susan Tree Treaties, which Meredith Klein is really good and help, helpful mm -hmm. in, uh, to understand their uh, what a covenant really was in the ancient Near East, and and how and how similar uh, the 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 covenant God makes with His people, and particularly with Abraham, is, uh, and in the same way how different it is as well. But the thing we need to be careful about here uh, is to not is to not is if if we lean upon legal instrument here, uh, we need to do that. We need to do that with a great deal of awareness in the fact that as he's going to say, and as I'm going to close out the chapter here and try to rush through this, um, the legal instrument there, we need to understand are God's righteous requirements there. Uh, are God's, uh, are God's uh, from the very beginning, are God's uh, uh, statement of blessing and curse as the ancient Near Eastern treaties are and covenants, uh, do this and you shall live, do this and you shall die or be punished. Uh, there is that element in here as well. Uh, what he's going to say is that is that ancient Israel indeed took uh, took the wrong lesson from that, uh, mm -hmm. rather than a legal instrument there, uh, thinking that thereby uh, that uh, if I can obey, uh, as our uh, Orthodox Jewish friends even to that even do to this day, uh, if I can uh, identify the five hundred some odd commandments. Uh, there, uh, that if I can, if that if I can obey them, uh, then indeed I am on a right. I'm in a right relationship. It's not that the. It's not that many of those commandments are not important. The covenant of grace, even though it is a legal instrument, we see that it is transformed in this. In the fact that as a legal instrument, it can either stand in judgment against us, of which we are all covenant breakers, or it can stand by its by that same measure and by that same strictness. It can stand as uh, as the instrument of our redemption, because that's uh, that anticipates Christ. Christ is the one who takes our onerous burden of obeying fully and completely and and, and perfectly uh, that legal instrument, that law of blessing and curse. Uh, there again. Uh, he fulfills it perfectly so that he receives the blessing. Uh, but at the same time, without deserving the curse, he takes our curse upon it and, and, and suffers for that upon Calvary. Um, and I, yeah. And I think, I think at that point then to understand legal instrument really is to understand it in that sense that not that God does not 
put that aside. Jesus is very particular to to uh, uh, to to teach early on, actually, in his ministry that he's not come to uh, he's not come to cancel the law, but to fulfill it, in the sense that we said there. And, and let me say this very quickly, and I'll and I'll leave. Uh, he, he he talks about the covenant of works, and he talks about the various covenants. I will say this in this re, in, in this regard, and I again we're passing over him. A, a, a good bit here, uh, but he makes the point about the covenant with w- the covenant of works um, and the covenant of grace. The covenant of works is indeed, as we've said, and we don't need to belabor this because we've already gone over it extensively. The covenant of works actually is the covenant of 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 that uh, is the first covenant, the covenant of blessing and curse, the the, the first uh, the first covenant given by God, whereby we live in relationship to Him. He reveals himself and and his righteous requirements, not putting any separation between them. His righteous requirements are the manifestation of himself and the very key to relationship and, and fellowship with him. He puts those out there. He says we ought not to, he says we ought not to, uh, and then he goes on and, and talks about the covenant with Abraham, covenant with Abraham uh, as a covenant of faith. Um, but then he goes on to talk about the covenant with Moses. Uh, and he says, we ought not to see the covenant with Moses there, uh, as a reiteration of the covenant of works. Uh, yes, there is the, there is the blessing and the cursing motif there. Uh, there's the framework for that there. Uh, but understand here that as Paul goes, uh, to great lengths in the book of Galatians to, to inform us, uh, that yes, uh, the, the covenant, uh, the Mosaic covenant comes after the covenant with Abraham. And it's not meant to be a replacement of it. Uh, it's meant to be an addition in the sense that, uh, in the sense that, uh, as Paul explicitly says to the Galatians, uh, it is for the purpose of structuring a people uh, for to deliver a Messiah, uh, in turn uh, to uh, to uh, de- to develop a covenant relationship. Uh, in, uh, in, uh, among a people with whom Messiah will come, it never is a means. It never is a means of of uh, the Mosaic covenant. Is never is is as a means of righteousness in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, therefore, he says that the uh, page five twenty nine, the structure of covenant theology consists of two covenants: a covenant of works of, in, in Adam and a covenant of grace in Christ. He then talks about the covenant with God's son and those in union with him. Um, at the bottom of 529, he says, God's faithfulness to his promise is guaranteed not only by the nature of a covenant, which even among men is inviolable, but also by the fact that God made the covenant with his son. And, and again, I, I'll, I'll conclude with this. I'm skipping over a whole lot here, but I know I, I see that we're running out of time here and I want to give Will time for his uh, this is this is a very this is a very important point here uh, in the fact uh, that he says uh, that that these are two ways that we look at the covenant of grace. Uh, we look at it immediately as it relates to us, and again we look at uh, the covenant of works, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with uh, uh, with uh, uh, Moses, the covenant with David, and, and and so forth, and all all these different ways. Uh, but he says, really, uh, and this is where the diamond is. Uh, he says, really, ultimately, we need to understand that God's covenant in its uh, in its in its ultimate fulfillment is not with us; it's with His Son. 
again, that's what we were saying earlier in the fact that his perfect obedience is what actually wrought for him the reward, uh, the reward of uh, uh, for which uh, he has poured out his blessings and has, has taken those rewards and has captured for himself a people by grace of whom we are. And therefore, there is a union. There is a union with the believer in uh, in the old and the new covenant, old by prospect, new by uh, by by current realization uh, of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ there. And uh, and whether in whatever period of time in which you stand, uh, the union with Christ, uh, is, the union with the Son, uh, is the covenant of grace. Uh, and it is that into which uh, God, uh, throughout all history, both past and future, from eternity even, from eternity past, as we say, into eternity future, all of it is centered on Jesus Christ. So the covenant of grace that we have with Christ draws us in union with him and shapes the contours there uh, of our relationship. As Beaky would say, not that the law is set aside, but what he would say is that the moral law of God actually still stands before us uh, as a way to please our heavenly father. But by the same token, it is that which is, uh, which does not stand. The, the law does not stand in condemnation of it. Now, I think he quotes there, uh, John Calvin, who says it is now, Oh yeah, it's on the bottom of five thirty-three. Uh, he says the Christian is led by the spirit and is not under the law. He says, John Calvin explained that since God accepts the good works of a believer in Christ, again, this is where the covenant of grace is fulfilled and where the union is, despite their defects, as he says, the law is no longer afflicts the conscience and will only act in the capacity of a kind advisor. I had to read that several times because I think, you know, I, I think we sometimes think of that more harshly than that. But really in the in in, in the in in the requirements of the law there, uh uh, Christ is a kind advisor. Uh, he will not, uh, a, a bruised reed, he will not break in a smoke, a smoking flax. He will not quench. And that's the whole point. That's the whole point of fulfillment of that prophecy is the fact, uh, that what God requires that Christ has purchased for us and has given to us in the covenant of grace. So, uh, sorry, I didn't leave a whole lot of time here, but. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, brother. Well, Will. How, how has the how has the church wrestled with this all the way from the early church even to today? Wow! So <laughs> this discussion yeah. could take weeks. It could, um, but yeah, oh yeah. But uh, so what I'd like to do first is summarize um, an error that you see early on in church history through Marcion, and then yeah. um, you see how a orthodox view of the covenants has expressed itself from Augustine through the Reformation in particular Baptists, and then discuss how things, how a more modern approach has kind of reverted back to Marcion, and then different, um, I would, uh, orthodox views of, modern orthodox views of, of covenants that are a little bit distinguished from Reformed theology. Um, and I'll say this, this, this chapter doesn't really give you a full expression of what Reformed theology teaches on, on covenant theology, 
Exactly. Uh, but it does give you a nice little synopsis through the Westminster Confession of Faith, what the different reformers thought, and then um, the distinguishing characteristics of uh, particular Baptist yeah. uh, covenant theology. Um, so I'm just going to preface that with you're, you're going to want to tune in next time to get a more <laughs> uh, comprehensive understanding of what Reformed theology teaches on, on covenant theology. Exactly. <clears throat> so to begin with... Um, there was a gentleman in the early church named Marcion of Pontus. Um, he taught that the creator of the physical world and the God of the Jews was an evil being, whereas Jesus Christ revealed the God of absolute love and spirituality and abolished the law. Um, in order to sustain that position, he had to reject all of the scriptures except fragments of Luke's gospel and much of Paul's epistles. And it's interesting that he had to do that because the Old Testament is so interwoven with the New Testament that the only way he could justify that position was to rip out everything except for snippets of of Luke's gospel and um, and much of Paul's epistles. It's it's interesting that and that's that's a heresy you see over and over and over again played out throughout history. The first thing people do when they go into heresy or where they start rejecting God wholesale is to undermine the scriptures. Mm. They start with undermining the Old Testament and the New Testament and only take what they like and then reject the rest. Um, so that was a big that was a he that was a big error in the early church. And but in the early church there were there were men who um, stood up against that. Justin Martyr said, I'm entirely convinced that no scripture contradicts another. Arrhenius said that the two covenants are of one and the same substance that is from one and the same God, for there is one salvation in one God. He added that Abraham's faith was the same as ours, for Abraham trusted in the future accomplishment of things promised by God. So there's these two covenants, the covenant of works you see in, in Adam, and then the covenant of grace. That's what Reformed theology teaches. But there's also a distinction in covenants that's made in, the, in throughout church history of between God with Abraham and the people of Israel and God through Christ and what in the covenant we have through Christ. And that distinction is important because you see it kind of played out throughout history, but also you see it come back in the form of dispensationalism. Um, so the first um, person that really started outlining outlining, excuse me, uh, <clears throat> this idea of, of looking at scriptures through covenants was Augustine. Um, he established that there was a covenant with Adam that promised blessing and threatened death, depending on man's obedience. Um, when Adam violated the first covenant, God immediately revealed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that that's a promise that goes back, this Genesis chapter 3, you know, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. The law and promise assisted each other in God's economy of salvation. The law was given in order that grace might be sought. Grace was given in order that the law might be fulfilled. That was Augustine. I just love that quote. Um, and so you see that throughout different stages of history, God is, is working his way to fulfill that promise to Eve in the garden. And he does, and but he is always making a way with his people 
to be able to go with, to be with him. And he does that through the medium of covenants. Um, later on in the medieval period, you have Thomas Aquinas. And he taught that the laws given to Israel contain moral, ceremonial, and judicial precepts. So Aquinas was kind of the first one to postulate that there's, you look at the Old Testament law, and there's three different distinctions of the law. The first one was the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments. The second is the ceremonial laws that, for instance, the, um, oh gosh, the turn festivals. Sorry, I don't know why that took me so long to get there. Um, <laughs> do you need then, to fill a cup, brother? I maybe I do. Uh, you're okay. <laughs> uh, I'm just the, looking by it for you. Appreciate you. The, the third one is the judicial precepts, and those were given to the nation of Israel as a governmental agency. Um, and you see that playing out. That's not something that's distinguished from Reformed theology, but that's that's an important idea to understand that when you're reading the Old Testament and you look at these different laws given, these different um, commands given, they're given under the umbrella of a God being God's covenant with his people, but they're outworking in different ways. And one of those ways is ceremonial, like how God would like us to, how he's ordained us to be able to interact with him. The other one is moral, which is written on man's heart from the beginning. And then the third is, is judicial the people of Israel were a nation, a, a physical nation at that time, and God was giving them laws to uphold, physical laws. And so that's an important distinction, too, when we look back now under the new covenant to look back and say, hmm, how do we, do I still need to stone my brother for planting two crops alongside, two, two different crops alongside of each other? Like, that's that's a different that's a wholesale different judicial system than what we live under today. Today, and so it's important to look back at the, at the, um, to see those distinctions when it comes to the law. And Aquinas was the one who who made that clear. Um, <clears throat> then you have the Reformed theologians. Um, the first theologian was Martin Luther, and he drew a strong, strong con contrast between the law and the gospel, the old covenant and the new covenant. He said that the old covenant, the old makes conditional promises of physical blessings based on obedience, and the new makes unconditional promises, granting the forgiveness of sins, grace, righteousness, and eternal life freely through Christ's sake. The old covenant produced a physical people for God, whereas the new covenant um, grants freedom in the Holy Spirit. He also taught that God revealed the promise of Christ as early as Genesis 3.15, uh, and that the Old Testament saints were justified by faith, um, not by works of the law, and their faith, like ours, was in Christ. And so it's important to understand that Luther looked back at what they were believing in, and it's not they weren't believing in, if I do these ceremonial things, I will be saved. They, the people who were saved in the Old Testament, were believing in the promise from Genesis 3.15 is what Luther postulated. Um, he also saw two covenants operating in God's dealing with Abraham and his offspring. So way back with God and Abraham, even in the Old Testament covenants, there were two actual covenants working themselves out. The material one involving the land of Canaan and the spiritual one involving 
eternal blessing. Now, his this dichotomy that he goes through and he, talking about these, these two distinctions, um, it can, there's this concept called antinomianism. And antinomianism uh, means that when you're under the new covenant, a lot of people like to think that the law no longer applies to them. But Luther didn't hold that view. Luther said that Christ of the truth has come not to destroy the law, but to make us into friends of the law. And so you see him working this theology out, starting to flesh out that there's these covenants, there's covenants of works and a covenant of grace. But when we're under the covenant of grace through the new covenant, it doesn't wholesale say we don't have to follow the law anymore. We still have to follow the law, but we're, we're friends with the law now. We're not enemies of the law. We're not hostile to the law. Um, now, then you come to Ulrich Zwingli, and Zwingli um, is considered the initiator of Reformed Covenant theology. He saw parallels between the earlier covenant and our covenant. Um, and this is really, I think, heavy also in Presbyterian circles, too. This is an important um, thing that you'll see work, working itself out into Presbyterianism. Um, he says that God is our God, and we must walk uprightly before him. He is God of our seed, and the covenant sign, which circumcision then, baptism now, is given to adults and young children. Zwingli saw Christians as participating in a covenant that predates Abraham, reaching all the way back to Adam and Noah. So up until Zwingli, there, when you're looking at covenant theology, it was covenants given to Abraham and then the new covenant through Christ. But Zwingli was probably the first one to see that there was a covenant made with Abraham, with Adam, which is what we call the covenant of works, and then a covenant with Noah as well. And so you see that kind of working itself out through, as early as, as Ulrich was Zwingli. Then you have Bullinger um, and his work that Beeky cites is called the One and Eternal Testament or Covenant of God. And he Beeky hails it as a milestone in Reformed Covenant theology. Um, and he's very, very similar to Zwingli. Um, he looked at circumcision as a sign of eternal covenant of God. And then the covenant is summarized in the promise that I am the all-sufficient God and the command walk before me in integrity. That promise reveals that the covenant stands not on, not on any human merit, but only on the sheer grace of God. Um, like Zwingli, Bollinger's covenantal vision was to reform Zurich according to the patterns of the Old Testament Israel. And this is kind of an interesting uh, development because now, now the, the Reformation has kind of been underway for a little while. You have Luther, who is challenging this works-based salvation through Roman Catholicism, and is saying, no, we're under a covenant of grace now. And then you see this kind of swing with Zwingli and Bollinger in, in Switzerland, where they're actually trying to create basically a new Israel in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. um, so then you see a development of Reformed Covenant theology um, through John Calvin. And John Calvin said, the covenant made with all the patriarchs is so much like ours in substance and reality that the two are actually one and the same yet they differ in mode of dispensation now this is different than dispensationalism but what what calvin postulated was that god was working himself out 
to be with his people. And he did that through different ways and different dispensations, meaning different covenants. First with Abraham, then with Moses, then with David, and then ultimately with Christ. But they're the same covenant, just working itself out in different ways. Um, yeah, well, if I can interrupt very quickly, and I will. Yeah. Uh, I think this is important for us to understand the, these modes of dispensation uh, and to think about, as you say, in Presbyterian terms, uh, whereas I, there's a great uh, quote by John Gill I passed over, and I wish I'd gotten to it, but he says they're, they're two different, uh, they're, 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 uh, I don't know if he uses the word dispensation, but they're two, uh, two, two different administrations uh, of the covenant of grace. Uh, uh, and I think that's an important distinction to make here. Right. Um, so, so you see these different covenants and then the question that comes is how, how are we to respond? And Calvin said that we must now consider how the covenant is rightly kept for as God binds himself to keep the promise he has given to us, the consent of faith and of obedience is demanded of us. So we keep these covenants through faith and obedience, um, and it's not a do this and live. It is a do this and live, but it's we're we're able to do this because we live through Christ. Um, so then you see the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession um, points that I'm going to. It's the 546, the first full paragraph. It says the Westminster Confession of Faith makes the following points that well summarized classic Reformed and Presbyterian covenant theology. God's covenants express his voluntary con condescension to meet the creatures on their level so that they can enjoy him. His first covenant with man was the covenant of works, and that's through Adam and his offspring, and it was upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Once there was the fall, then God made the covenant of grace to address the needs of fallen man, offering life in Christ, requiring faith in Christ, and promising the spirit of Christ to convert the elect. Um, the Bible calls the covenant of grace a testament because it grants an eternal inheritance by the death of Christ. God administered the covenant in different ways under the law and the gospel when Christ, Christ has come. These are not two covenants of grace different in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. And again, that's quoting Calvin. That last statement is, oh, sorry. The, the early Reformed theologians debated the nature and function of the Mosaic covenant they were unified in regarding God's dealings with his old covenant people as being under the covenant of grace. So again, you see the Westminster Confession of Faith basically saying there's two distinct covenants, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Covenant of works was through Adam in, his, in man's perfection, and then after man's fall, there was a covenant of grace, one covenant of grace, being worked out in different dispensations through Moses, Abraham, Abraham. Um, I said Moses, I'm sorry, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. So then you have um, particular Baptist theology. And I'm going to start with the 1689 on page 550. It says, this covenant is revealed in the gospel first of all to Adam and the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. 
and is found in the eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the grace of the covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and a blessed immortality. I mean, man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms in which Adam stood in his state of innocency. So there's a lot of similarities between the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith and the Westminster Confession. However, the Baptist Confession, and this is, uh, again, on page 550, I'm just going to read it here. The Baptist Confession does not state that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are two administrations of the One Covenant of Grace. Instead, it goes on to talk about progressive revelation and that the progressive revelation of the gospel that got that culminates in the new covenant, leaving the revelation of the old and the new covenants undefined. So the difference is the reformed Presbyterian view under the Westminster confession looks at uh, these, these covenant theology in two distinct groups, covenant of works, covenant of grace. And that the covenant of grace through these different covenants with Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, uh, and even Christ, are all the one covenant of grace just working themselves out in different ways. But the Baptist view is that, no, it's a progression. You see, first, it's the, the promise of the seed, or the, the promise of with Noah, then the, the promise of offspring with Abraham, then how God works out his covenant with the offspring in the, the law and then the kingdom prophecies with or uh, covenant with with david and the royal heir and then ultimately that being fulfilled in christ um then you have but they there's a lot of kind of a lot of things that weren't defined in the second london baptist confession of faith so you have two guys nehemiah cox and benjamin keach um, they taught that God's dealings with Abraham involved two covenants, just as Abraham had physical offspring and spiritual offspring. Um, the covenant with Abraham's physical seed was the covenant of circumcision, was a covenant of works demanding the obedience to God's commands, which were fully stated in the law by Moses, which was a covenant of works and its conditions or terms, do this and live. However, Cox said that the covenant with Abraham's carnal seed did not negate or diminish the covenant of grace given to believers but was added and made subservient to the greater ends thereof. So Keech explained the Mosaic covenant of law served to show man his inability to attain righteousness by his works. The law did not save anyone, but all believers who lived under the Old Testament were saved by the covenant of grace that was given, was established by Christ. So this is, this is kind of a, this is a very complex topic, but Keech was, I really like what Keach said here because Keach was saying that the these Old Testament covenants weren't saving anybody. They were right. the Old Testament people were saved by faith in the promise, and yep. this Old Testament covenant, the only thing it served to do was to show man his inability to save himself. And yep. that's an important. If you learn nothing else from from this thing, that this is, I think, something that I, I found extremely helpful to understand um but it did somebody posed a question to me a couple weeks ago and then I'm, I'm really short on time but i i, I thought i was going to ask this question the the old testament saints were saved through the, the faith and the promise that wasn't ratified yet because christ hadn't come 
And then in the New Testament, you see that when Christ ascended or when Christ rose from the dead, there was the there was an the accounts given in the gospels of of people rising from other people rising from the dead and walking and and ascending. What do you make of that? Is that is that when Christ ratified it that the old these were the Old Testament saints being made whole at that point? Or is there is there any correlation there or what what's the deal with that? I, I think that's just a figure of it. Um, again, we, we need to make the kind of like we do with Lazarus. We need to, we need to make clear there that rising up and walking about among them is a great sign. Uh, but again, to understand like, like Lazarus, they did not ascend with Christ into heaven in a bodily form. In other words, uh, they did not have what Christ accomplishes in his second visible coming so hmm. interesting um so then just briefly i'm gonna so that's that's kind of a summary of, of reformed and, and and even reformed baptistic uh covenant theology i just really want to quickly touch on um modern two modern views that were significant errors and then um dispensationalism and progressive covenant theology and new covenant theology. So then you see, as time goes on, um, in the 1800s, there is this return kind of to this Marcion structure of viewing the Old Testament. And the, it's through the liberal modernism. And liberal modernism, they wholesale reject the Old Testament. And basically say that the New Testament is basically this message of love, fostering an approach to the Bible that is, is basically saying everything you read in the Old Testament is irrelevant. And the only thing that's relevant is the New Testament. And the New Testament just promises love and faith through Christ, and that's it. Then you have another guy named Karl Barth, and, and this one's even, I, I don't know which one's scarier. Hmm. Um, but then Barth talks about how God is not, I'm trying to summarize it um, without reading the whole thing. He wasn't saying, he didn't view the covenant as being for just those who put their faith in Christ, but for all mankind. It's this this view of universalism. Mm -hmm. And Karl Barth was, was basically saying that it's kind of like this progress. He he basically viewed it as like a progressive revelation of God saving just the people of Israel, then through Christ saving everyone. He looked at it as saying, now, now what we see is progressively God is saying all mankind are saved, which doesn't really align with any idea of redemption. If, if we are now walking with God and there's no need for salvation, then why did Christ die? And he doesn't answer that question. So you see that kind of rear its ugly head again. It's a, it's this, it's the old thing. There's nothing new under the sun. Marcion is is revisited now through liberal modernism and through Karl Barth. Um, but then you see, even after that, there's kind of a return historic. Like as we're looking through history now in in modern times, there's either return to the reformed view, but but a little bit different. Um, and then you see 
this holding to scripture, but then a rigid holding to scripture through dispensationalism. They don't look at this through the lens of progressive revelation or through, uh, yeah, through progressive revelation. They, dispensationalism looks at the Old Testament covenants with the people of Israel as being wholly and separately distinct from the new covenant through Christ. And they, they hold that the new covenant through Christ is for the Gentiles. The old covenant is through for the people of Israel. And there's this two distinct plans that God has for the people of Israel and for the Gentiles, for the rest of the world. Um, and then you have uh, basically they say after God and this is on the top of page 556, the essential outline of dispensationalism, after God gathers a church from the Gentiles and it falls into spiritual decline, God will bring the Jews to himself and then Christ will return to reign in his kingdom. And that's that's the dispensationalist view is they, they look at these two distinct people groups. And I don't know, we've been going through Ephesians in our church and I don't understand how you can look at Ephesians where it says that there is no distinction now, we're all one in Christ and how they can justify that position with these holding these two different views. Um, then there's a progressive dispensationalism that comes later, because I think there was a, a recognition that that's wholly inconsistent with all of scripture and progressive dispensationalism talks about how God's covenants with Abraham and David find their fulfillment in the first coming of Jesus though the actual reign of Christ awaits its second coming. Um, they say its spiritual blessings are being applied presently to Gentiles in Christ, but its complete fulfillment will take place when the kingdom is restored to the nation of Israel. So I think the difference between dispensationalism, progressive dispensationalism, and Reformed theology is that progressive dispensationalism is kind of borrowing from both camps. They're saying that they're borrowing from the reform camp to talk about progressive revelation and how, yes, this, this is actually progressive. These covenants are progressive and, and fulfillment in Christ, but then they're talking about through dispensationalism, but it hasn't that, that progressive dispensation is still working itself out even today and how what Christ did on the cross and that new covenant isn't completely fulfilled yet until all of the nation of Israel is restored. Um, then you have New Covenant Theology. Um, but they, they, it's New Covenant Theology talks about the whole history of redemption revolves around Abraham and his seed. So they, they acknowledge that, but they regarded a mistake to call the unifying purpose the covenant of grace because the New Testament emphasizes the discontinuity between the Old and the New Covenant. So New Covenant Theology really kind of wholesale it's 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 almost like they're rejecting Old Testament principles, um, but they 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 I'm I'm really not completely understanding that one, but they essentially um, they basically say all the Old Testament covenants are irrelevant now. We just have the New Covenant, and basically makes the Old Testament obsolete. And then finally, you have progressive covenantalism, and progressive co covenantalism teaches that there was a covenant of creation in which Adam stood as the representative head of the human race. Israel's identity and promises are not fulfilled in a future political entity, but in Christ, the true Israel, by union with whom God 
Christ's people in all eras receive justification and sanctification. For the new covenant, people of God insist of a new spiritual community regenerated by the Spirit. Progressive covenantalists argue that the Ten Commandments must be interpreted in, the cov in their covenantal context and apply today as they are fulfilled in Christ. So some major distinctions here is you see that um, the Sabbath is not as a universal moral law, but a foreshadowing of the Christian spiritual rest in Christ. So they, they look at the New Testament and say that the Old Testament only applies as the New Testament interprets it. And so they they view ideas like the Sabbath rest and some of these um, even Ten Commandment principles as, be, as being fulfilled in Christ and that they don't need to be adhered to unless they're specifically mentioned in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So that, in a very brief and somewhat disjointed uh, <laughs> nutshell, is, is the is how you see covenant theology working itself out through history. And that's a good historical framework to move yeah. forward. Yeah, brothers, and th thank you so much. It, it is a massive subject. It, it is definitely too much to, uh, to, to give any type of uh, good coverage to in just the short amount of time we have. Yeah. Any one so, of these three would have been a, would have been a, a whole session in itself. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. 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 So real quick, just before we get off of here, I want to just suggest a, a few resources that I hope would be helpful. Uh, and, uh, Mike Quintus, our, uh, I guess our producer, we could call him, I guess, uh, he, uh, I've already asked him if he's going to have these things in the, uh, uh, the different descriptions of and all the different places he puts us out. I think all oh, the show notes as the podcast people call yeah, them. Yeah, there we go. Uh, so yeah, iTunes and uh, I think right. YouTube and right. he may have a third outlet. Oh yeah, uh, SoundCloud. So uh, so the first thing I would want to recommend is a book by a guy by the name of Pascal Denau. He's French oh, and uh, last name is D E N A U L T. Yeah, he, he actually Pascal. yeah. I, it, he actually pronounces it Denault, I think. Yeah. I, I called him Denault forever until I ran across a guy, and and Bing, it occurred to me he's actually French, so it would be Denault. So, see, and you would know that, Marv. We got the French Cajun connection going. The Louisiana, <laughs> yeah, thing going on, right? yeah, every now and then. It, uh, not only in my dietary uh, richness, but also in other ways, it sometimes comes through and pays off. Yeah, yeah. So Pascal Deneau, and again, uh, the spelling of his name, in case you want to look it up, P-A-S-C-A-L, last name D-E-N-A-U-L-T. He's got a book Very called The book. Distinctiveness of Baptist yep. Covenant Theology. The subtitle is A Comparison Between yep. 17th Century Particular Baptist and Pado baptist Federalism. So it's big title. Very very good very very good yeah i and, think it's uh, actually his master's thesis as well i yeah. think could, could you put that in a text message <laughs> uh yeah 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 i'll text that to you uh, last also, brother don't grab the yeah. last copy of well actually i already have it so you know, <laughs> knock yourself out <laughs> and in another book if, if you did not go through our i believe it was our very first or second discipleship group but we went through samuel renahan's book entitled yeah. the mystery of christ his mm -hmm. covenant in his kingdom, I would highly, highly recommend yeah. that. It takes a very, very complicated subject, covenant theology, just like what we've looked at here. And uh, he really just simplifies it, puts the cookies on the bottom shelf. So I highly recommend that. And then two other things, uh, a website is uh, 1689 Federalism. And the address is just simply www.1689federalism.com. 
many, many good resources there. And another one would be a video resource you can find on YouTube. The title of the video is 1689 Federalism Compared to Westminster Federalism. And it's just a short 12-minute video, and it will do a good comparison between Baptist, Reformed Baptist covenant theology, and Presbyterian covenant theology. In 12 minutes? Excellent. Yeah. yeah. They did a better job than I did. No, I doubt <laughs> uh, that. It's very, very succinct. So anyway, hopefully those resources would help anyone who wants to go deeper there. And there's many other resources we could suggest. So. No, but I, I do think that's good prep work for where we're going with this, because we have 200 pages to to go through mm-hmm. uh, before we ever get to the to the person and work of Christ. So I think those are good good suggestions. Right. Well, brothers, thank you so much. I know you need to run. Uh, we'll throw it to Mike. Mike, could you just briefly close us out with a word of prayer, brother? Sure. Heavenly Father, thank you for this this just uh, past hour and a half that we've had together, Father, in discussing uh, this ch- these three chapters in, in Vicky's Systematic Theology. Lord, it has definitely been a blessing and enlightening uh, for all. Father, I just pray that those that uh, are listening to this uh, later on the podcast, Lord, that it would be uh, enlightening to them and, uh, again, encourage them in, in, in the study of uh, the study of theology, Lord. But more importantly, Lord, that they would dive uh, more and more into the study of your word, Lord, and uh, gain to gain a better understanding and, and have you reveal your truths to them, Father. Again, I thank you for these uh, brothers of mine that uh, here this morning and just continue to watch over them and uh, give us direction and guidance as we uh, 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 continue our day. For it's in your name, I pray. Amen. Amen.